Hello, geeks and sweaters. You join us in a very geeky and sweaty situation in the bowels of Raindance HQ. As always, this is our special podcast for you, giving you news, views and interviews. And reviews. We watch films to save you the hassle. Today, we are presented by the tremendous, tormented, talkative, talismanic, totalitarian Trevor. Hello. And we are co-presented by the admirable, adventurous, apoplectic, advantageous, all-knowing Akosh. Hi, guys. And, as always, we are controlled by the magnificent, magnanimous Malachi, MKH. And finally, as always, we are co-presented by myself, the distinctive, dominable, divergent Dominic. I don't write these, by the way. Today we have a very special special guest. We are joined today by Mr. Elliot Grove, the founder of Raindance. Hey, well welcome to the bowels of Raindance. That that was a callback to something that happened, but honestly you don't need to know any more than that. Was it, was it smelly? Oh, I think it was the explanation why one of us was a bit late today, that's why. Oh, right. <laughs> Mentioning no names. Trevor! Um, but is, because of um, your status of, uh, as rain dance leader and um, innovator, is it possible that I can call you God Founder for the rest of this interview? <laughs> oh my God! This with the rumor in your listeners can't see it. It has a very narrow door. If you do too much of that, we I won't be able to leave because my head will swell yeah. greater than the width of the door, and I'll be stuck in here. But the reason why I want to call you God Founder is because you are in a key position of everything that's happened and everything that's changed in UK independent cinema in let's say the last 20 years and also you've got an impeccable fashion style that's um uh throwback to i want to remember this italian director of what was it Mes- the guy who did um i wish i had my internet at my fingertips fellini yeah and uh because you wear a lot of black and white in your in your outfits oh, just and- black actually i wear a lot of black and black yeah okay well you you you're wearing a nice black t-shirt black jacket black shades combo today so thank you for <laughs> this the God glasses. yeah the glasses is very key key part um another thing should we start with the questions because the thing is, it's like one thing I've got to say. Uh, because of this TV show or this podcast, rather geeks, where you can't see this, but I am actually just very moist at the moment, and this is probably because I'm being present. Is that the excitement? The yeah, it's the excitement of being in front of the God Founder. And um, <laughs> I was trying to wear a special shirt today, but I'm just soaked through. But um, I was so excited, I actually made sure that my glasses got fixed before I came to see him today. So, um, but the first question I want to ask you is. What is the original purpose of Raindance? Well, it's kind of a long story, if I can be brief or long. What do you want? Long Whichever or... way we want to go. Well, look, I, I, I'm Canadian. I grew up on a farm outside Toronto. My parents were Amish, the horse and buggy people. I was told never, ever to go to the cinema because the devil lived there. Here I am doing the devil's work. And then... Um, my last year of high school, I ended up in Toronto, 
And when I graduated, I ended up going to a traditional art school in downtown Toronto, taught by expatriate Brits who had fled this dull, damp and dirty island right after World War II. And my three-year post-secondary school graduation certificate proclaims to be an expert in nothing to do with literature, literature or filmmaking. I am, however, a qualified sculpture technician in something called Sir Perdu, Lost Wax Bonds Casting. So I first came here in the 70s, uh, worked for a bit for Henry Moore, then I worked as um, uh, for three days only for Sir Anthony Caro, the sculptor, where I got archive. That's why I wear these glasses. I was blind three years ago, believe it or not. What's archive for our listeners who may not know about the sculpting world? Uh, you get too much, welders get it from too much spark in your eye, spark eye. Oh, wow. Really? It causes cataracts, yeah. Oh, Which so your British National Health removed painlessly, by the oh, way. Wow. Um, <laughs> round of applause? <laughs> for the National Health. Uh, <laughs> a round of applause. <laughs> Let's do that again. How about a big round of applause for the British <laughs> Uh, I worked at the, at the BBC as a stagehand. This is in the mid-70s. Went back to Canada for nine years. Uh, did everything under the sun. Worked in the studios there. Did all kinds of other stuff. Came back here, mid-80s. And in 1991, went spectacularly bankrupt. I was fancied myself as a property entrepreneur. Mm. I was renovating flats in the center of London. Interest rates went to 24%. And overnight, properties went half. Mm. And I lost everything. And I decided that I wanted to do something I loved, which was movies, even though my parents had told me never ever to go to the movie theater. But being Canadian and being somewhat sneaky, I decided to get some quids out of your guys' pockets into mine. And I realized that British people really like membership cards to semi-secret membership organizations. And thus was born the Raynance membership scheme. And then about a year later, I started the festival because uh, people were making films. But this is early 90s. People were making films with literally no money. Mm. And everyone here said, you can't do that. So I started Raindance Film Festival really as a thought experiment. Could you make a movie with no money? None of us were all broke. My first intern was a guy called Edgar Wright. We're flat broke, all of us. Could you make a film without any film training? Some of us had experience working on other people's films, but no one had actually made their own film on their own. And th could you make a film without any film education? None of us had been to film school. Chris Nolan, uh, Edgar Wright, and a whole bunch of others who are as talented as those two, but have yet to achieve the commercial or financial success that those two big names have. So that's how Raindance started, and I hope that rather long-winded question gave you an idea of the painful birth of Raindance. In fact, year three, our second screen was a bedsheet in the basement of the Arts Theatre Club on Wardour Street downtown here. Uh, I never used to mention that until this year when I told someone in passing that that was kind of cool, and I thought, really? It was so humiliating to show in a bedsheet that kept falling <laughs> down. It was me with the masking tape trying to get it stuck up. but. Does it sound cool to screen on a bed sheet? I think the desire to put on a show versus your resources is pretty cool. I'm right. Well, maybe it is cool. And by the way, the weather today is very warm in London. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Humid. We are suffering. But remember, team. No matter how hot the air temperature or how high the humidity, when you're in rain dance, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you, God founder. We really appreciate <laughs> that. I can feel the air temperature just dropping with that. Yeah. I feel that, yeah, I feel cooler just from hearing those lines just now. You know, I'm feeling like in the presence of coolness. Cool, um, cool is a state of mind. <laughs> One thing I wanted to ask as, as well, um, because you've said so much about what Rain Dance is, because it's part, it feels like it's part festival, part film school, and you do now do nationally recognized qualifications am i right mm -hmm. so yep. it's almost like it's part university and you actually have made films within the rain dance banner yeah um what would you say is the most important part of rain dance what's the heart of what it's about well the the the, the, the heart of rain dance is the people like you that are members that and join rain dance and come to events that's the heart it's a membership organization a community if you like out of which we have the festival and the film school and the higher education part which helps keep the bank managers somewhat happy. Mm. So, sorry, when Raindance existed as a secret society almost, um, <laughs> what actually happened? We did networking events. Uh, we had, would bring people over from America uh, to teach about writing, directing, producing, all that kind of stuff. And then um, people started making films and then the festival happened. It, it's just grown organically. I just got back last week from Tokyo. Two weeks ago I was in Tokyo and um it looks like we're going to have rain dance tokyo and rain dance beijing and we've got a dozen cities around the world where like-minded people no money no training no experience trying to make movies and rain dance i suppose in the grandiose way one could describe it as a disruptor mm -hmm. and all businesses of whatever category when someone a new boy gets in the block the uber on cabbies and so on yeah. when the new boy gets in the block everyone's pissed off and everyone hates in fact the first few years of rain dance i had huge abuse thrown at me by all the the government the establishment. organization the establishment yeah. and then gradually they accept you and then the next challenge is to become financially secure we haven't quite solved that one yet at rain dance and then you get acceptance and then I'm finding now I get the new challengers, the people that are hipper, younger, cooler, if that's possible, than Raindance trying to knock us off our perch. So that has always forced us to keep innovating over the years and keep refreshing our, our, our business plan. I think that's something we might return to later on. But can I just ask you about the name? What does it actually signify? Oh, my God. <sighs> First year, we, we went for cute. Right, because of name. sun, because of Sundance, you know, okay. rain dance. But is yeah. there something beyond that? Is it like something well, yes. shamanistic or something like that? Well, the phone rang I, in my old office in Chelsea. I was sharing office. The phone rang. I had a call waiting. I so broke. We were one line call waiting. It was Robert Redford himself asking wow. me why I'd nicked the name Rain Dance from Sundance, and I said, mm. "Well, wait a minute." He said, why are you calling it rain dance? And I said, because of the dance you need to do to make your film and because it rains in London. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> That's quite and, then, and then he slammed the phone down. Really? <laughs> he didn't see the funny side. <laughs> no, he yeah. didn't. You know, I was hoping to be able to allow me to lead him to the plethora of talented filmmakers in Europe, but he, he wasn't... Has, there been, has that bridge been mended or crossed since In the time? last five years it has. Yeah. Uh, the guy who was producing the festival used to throw glasses of wine at my so colleagues and other festivals around the world and so on. He, oh, he would dear. avoid me and cuss me and so on. I met him or our paths crossed. But now that was he, that an annual event, the, the wine throwing? 
because it sounds it like, like every couple of years you'd hear of Jeff would get pissed off and dump another glass of red on some girls usually white blouse but now that he's at Tribeca we're best friends and yeah. John Cooper is now running Sundance whenever he's in London okay we hang out for a bit or I assume we can yeah so yeah peace has been restored but yeah we're both a little edgy because we're both you know yeah so that's a little bit punk rock to kind of be at a film festival where one film festival organizers throw an alcohol over another i mean that's like, was this actually even like making traction or making news because it feels like sundance was almost using rain dance as a kind of gimmick to say look these are the bad boys of um the film independent industry and we want to let them know how we feel about well there was a there was there's still slam dance there okay. used to be Son of Van Dance. <laughs> <laughs> there used to be many different dance festivals. Yeah. And Moon Dance, of course. Um, I don't know. I don't think we were ever that well organized enough to yeah. threaten Sundance in any way. He, he was just a bit of personal acrimony and professional jealousy, perhaps. Do you know what? It reminds me of um, the that TV show, Flight of the Conkles, when they get onto their gigs and they say, uh, we're actually the fourth best folk band in the world because there's actually a folk band called Like of the Concords who play the same songs that we do but better <laughs> and it, so did you feel that there was ever that sense of competition of we're in the top four we're in the top three or it, was it just we're doing our own thing in London so people just need to come over and see what we do well see Raindance is unique in because we live in London and London's kind of a cool destination mm. I never ever want to be the top of anything I mm. just want to be the best of what it is we do mm. a bit like when you're want some cool clothes you don't go to you know the big department stores you go down the little alleyway to find the yeah. little cool shop and that's mm. what I like the boutique is mm. how I see it I want to ask about this kind of moving down little alleyways and uh, looking through boutiques. Malachi's looking at me very strangely as if I'm soliciting him. And that's because, <laughs> that's because you need some more applause. Okay. Godfounder. Asking I, you shall receive. Yeah. Godfounder, what I'd like to ask is, you, you briefly tapped on your property <coughs> renovation history. Mm -hmm. And did that history and experience give you an insight into the location because you have kind of an almost mini iconic location in London being very near Chancery Lane it's almost like being in the London dungeons like you're in the belly of the city here <laughs> of the beast exactly <laughs> well you know location 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 you see I, I'm entrepreneurial enough mm. my farming background I suppose that if I was going to do an event be it a screening or a film course mm. People need to come from all four, four, four corners of the city. Yeah. So if I was east or north or south or west when it was cheap, I'd only get a quarter of the city. So we always try. I've always been right in the center of. Mm. Well, this is Charing Cross. You know, we mm. used to be up in Soho. Yeah. yeah, and you know it's expensive, but you know you save on that. And when the American interns join us the yeah. first day, they come in and they go out for lunch and mm. I was following one the other day mm. and they're on their phone texting mom and dad I'm at Trafalgar Square and it was yeah. literally 30 yards from the front door of the office as you know so that's yeah. that's cool and I'm enough of a tourist still on this island yeah. that I, I'm impressed myself every morning when I get here so it's very important for you to kind of pick like Chancery Lane as an area to start off with for your the head HQ of Raindance 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think if you want to do something important, you'd be in the center. Make it easy for anyone to get to. So, the next question I have is: What were your first impressions of London when you moved here? Everyone walked and drove on the wrong side of the road. Yeah. You know that that that, that, that took me, and now now when I go back home and I think they're driving on the wrong side of the road, it took me a while to acclimatize to that, and they go on the wrong side in the lift and the stairs and all that. Um, London has always impressed me as being this melting pot of talent from all corners of the world. I grew up in Somalia, and as you know, there's many Somalis here. There's people from every single country in the world, mm. and each nation and each indigenous people, if you like, or each nationality group bring their own cultural uh, icons to the city, and it's just like this amazing mix. There was a guy here yesterday from Toronto. He did a class for us on the weekend, and he was just saying, I am so amazed by London. You know, there's just so much going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you want? Music, dance, theater, film? And then of each of those categories, which flavor do you want? Mm. And it does make London one of the great cultural cities of the world. And I, I've just got back from Tokyo, which is amazing, of course. Mm. New York I go to a lot. Amazing, of course. But London is still my favorite place because of, I don't know, it just... I mean, you Londoners don't want to hear this. You want to go to New York and Tokyo and Paris. I know that. But believe yeah. me, you've got it pretty damn good here. Okay. So on the scale of Dick Van Dyke to Ray Winston, how good is your Cockney accent? It's really bad. I, I wouldn't even want to attempt it. I, I <laughs> so we're saying it. Dick Van Dyke is what we're saying. <laughs> so uh, Ray Winston is a jury. He just agreed yesterday to be a juror this year at the Rain Dance Film Festival, which is really cool. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Round of applause. Yeah. So when you came to London, was there like a sense of untapped potential? Obviously it was very multicultural, but did you feel that um, the film scene was underdeveloped as you saw it when you first came? When, when I started Raindance, that was in 92. Princess Diana was still alive. Uh, John Major was still Prime Minister. And in terms of filmmaking, it was either them, the industry, or nothing. And I found what I did was very, very easy. It would be almost impossible to start a type of rain dance now because there's so many other people doing the same thing. Um, and so I preyed upon the naivety and the gullibility of the Brits who wanted to make movies back then. And being able to show them using a very pragmatic, practical approach just get a camera pointed and expose film stock in the day to actors that's is what filmmaking is if you want to figure out how that gizmo works or how to give yourself another round of applause mm. you should do that you, again perfect time you, you you would find someone that could do that for you and you see the industry doesn't like that because they like all this mystique surrounding it mm. to keep people like you guys out and me too for that matter so if you break down those walls, then A, you piss off the establishment, and B, you actually do some really cool stuff like Chris Nolan's first film, The Following, Edgar's first film, Fistful of Fingers, and Jake West's first film, and so on, all these first films by filmmakers, which is essentially uh, their own film school, really. Mm. When I was in Tokyo, we're thinking of doing film training in Japanese in Japan, which is frightening. But the guy I was speaking to there said uh, what he liked about Raindance is you actually made films and he likened it to a driving school when you learn to drive a car. You don't sit in a lecture room listening to some guy pointing to the ignition and the key. You actually get in a car and drive. Unless you go and go-karting. That's a yeah. very dangerous ah. thing to do. <laughs> 
Yeah, but you learn to drive by driving. You learn to make films by writing scripts and making films. And nowadays with the new technology, your phone there, it's got a camera that's 4K, the envy of us 20 years ago. Mm. Free on your phone, for God's sake. Yeah, you know? that's incredible. Mm. I mean, I had a Sony Z1 back in the day. And by back in the day, I mean 2007. And now that is surpassed by my phone. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's, it is incredible. And yeah. And you can even edit on it and record sound, the whole shebang. Yeah, it's amazing. So perhaps this would be a good time to mention the 15-second film festival that happens under the auspices of Raindance. Oh, right. <laughs> can All you that. make a movie in 15 seconds with a beginning, a middle, and an end? Mm. And the answer is, of course you can. But we've done it many, many times. <laughs> is there a restriction on the type of device that you're allowed to use when you're making these films? No, no, none. It's 15 seconds at the time that your your watch. That's the only restriction. Mm. So, do you feel that it's particularly in the UK has that opened people's minds to the possibilities of what a 15 second film could be, or do you think people are more restricted and more precise about what they deliver? I went to art school. I'm going to answer the question obliquely. I went to art school, and one day we were given a sheet of paper with one inch squares or three centimeter, whatever that is, little squares. And we had to fill each block with a different shade of red. Mm. Pen, pencil, paint, whatever. God, I hated that. And the next day we got another sheet and had to do it now with pen and ink and another sheet the next day. And I used to hate that until I realized the reason my tutor was giving me that is to show me that when you have confines of anything, it actually can be a very creative device. Mm. So in terms of the definition of 15 seconds, you don't have the big... Uh, time to go and do the big helicopter shot of London setting the location so you choose something like a universal moment the wedding the marriage the first kiss the whatever it is the you know you know the the, the sporting event the World Cup parade or whatever because right then when you when you when people see that they they know what to expect and then how can you you flip that or turn that around for drama hmm. so it's a very interesting um, Writers I know that I work with often give themselves limitations. Uh, visual artists, musicians. Sure. Can yeah. you make? Can you? Can you play a song on only one note? Hmm. Of course you can. We've got one note samba. Reverb as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah. And and the the thing is, someone who's skilled at their craft hmm. that takes something as short as a fifteen seconds or the one note, when they do it and do it with confidence, we just go wow. How did you mm. think of that? I just saw last night, I saw Whitney, the new documentary. Uh, mm. Kevin McDonald did a Q&A afterwards. This was at BAFTA. My God, the talent she had in that time. She went and did um, the American Anthem at the, at, the, at the football game, the big football game. Yeah. And <clears throat> they'd added an extra note to give her a bit more time to... And she just... She didn't rehearse. She just thought about it and went up and blew everyone away. And just, you think that a national anthem is pretty square. Mm. Took it where no one else has ever taken it. Wow, it's an amazing example. <coughs> I haven't seen that yet. No, I definitely like it. want I to. Like it. You'll be prepared to weep. Oh, I'm very emotional. You know, I already would be. Anything like that. <coughs> what about, you know, Amy Winehouse killed me? Not literally, obviously, because I'm still here. That's <laughs> Steve Kapadia's film, Amy, yes. So, um, going back to one of the other things that you did back in the 90s, you founded with Suzanne Ballantyne the British Independent Film Awards. 
I did indeed. And at the time, did that feel like a necessity? Did it grow organically out of rain dance, or how did that come about? Well, see, I'll explain. I started rain dance '92. By '98, I was kind of annoyed. Can I use a mild expletive? Yeah, we yeah. say fuck all the time. All right, good. Yeah. I was pissed off that you Brits still hadn't accepted what we were doing. By this, we had a few minor successes, well, the Nolans and the Edgar Wrights and so on. Mm. And enough people were making British films, but in this nation, for some reason, if you made a film, they didn't view it as any good, unless you're American, right? Is it because the the door to come through and say I'm accepted wasn't wide enough or the platform wasn't big enough to show all of the films I think, in one year. I think you British were so self-disrespecting you didn't want to pat yourself on the back. Really? So I thought one day, I thought let's throw a party and celebrate independent filmmakers. Mm. And then to get people of note from the industry come, I thought we have to give out awards. So what do we call it? We call it the Independent Film Awards. And then being completely naive, I decided to slap the name British on the front, the British <laughs> Independent Film Awards. Three weeks after the event, I got a letter from the Houses of Parliament saying, hey, tourists, you just can't put the word British in the front of something. <laughs> wow. Because so, we are so naive, I'm assuming, that we yeah. just assume it's, it's got the rubber stamp and it's okay from the government, which well, it isn't. Was so it, stop doing it. So this was like a Trade Descriptions Act yeah. problem almost. Yeah. Wow. So I had to go and get 30 letters from the great and the good, the Ken Loach, who's always supported me, and, and the Mike Lees, and then we got the acceptance to call it the British Independent Film Awards. Mm. So it did happen that first year. Uh, a friend of mine was snorting coke in the toilet, got rumbled by Vinnie Jones, mm -hmm. and I got my mate out right before the cops came. <laughs> uh, someone else hissed and booed Ken Loach, and another guy went and punched him. we had fist fights people were waking up in police stations the next morning forgetting how they got there wow. it was quite a yeah quite a party so this brings it back to like it's the rock and roll rain dance all over again is that the is that the something that you embrace or is that something you like to keep separate i think rock and roll is such a great thing I just think people should rock and roll without losing life or limb mm. so let's try and keep it safe Cool. Um, I think we've got uh, another question that I'd like to ask. I mean, talking about rock and roll, I want, I want to kind of speak a little bit about what feels to me from the outside looking in like a rivalry. But um, there's this kind of, uh, there's two individuals and um, I feel it's like a Federer-Nadal situation going on. Where it comes to independent film, you're on one side of the tennis court with your tennis bat and you're hitting rain dance over the court. However, there's another gentleman called Chris Jones <laughs> who is also in the arena of providing advice, giving information, talking about independent film yeah. and he's got writing schools and competitions. What I'd like to ask is, what is your relationship with Chris? I love Chris. In fact, I did a panel with him just last week here at the London Writers Week. Mm -hmm. And Chris, I admire Chris for his uh, marketing nous, mm -hmm. and he's turned the London Screenwriters Festival into the Woodstock of screenwriting. It's just like madness that goes on there, and well mm -hmm. done to him. And we share information, and often, I've got his cell phone, we'll often call each other and ask advice on certain key things. Mm -hmm. So I don't see us as competitors. I see us on the same team, but we're like... Um, 
partners on what do you call it? doubles doubles tennis sometimes he gets the ball sometimes I do so it's more of a De Niro Pacino yeah. you've never quite collaborated on the same thing yeah. but you've had like one or few time, well, we've two times to kind of come together we've shot his films at Raindance and I've done stuff with him all the time but uh, not so much in the last few years because the London Screenwriters Festival I'm almost always at a Toronto Film Festival or New York just that weekend it's hard to be two places at once sure and do you think it's hard to kind of see a, a new type of Chris Jones or Elliot Grove emerging like as a champion for independent filmmakers or do you think there is that space for other people to say I'm here to kind of pull everyone else up by the bootstraps and say we need to pay attention to the next emerging filmmaker I think the creative industries are always looking for leaders mm. and the leaders come in different shapes sizes and ages look at me I'm old there's white hair um, and it's a style God found uh, it's part of coolness we <laughs> wouldn't co be able to see you from all the black alright yeah. oh, right. oh, is that why you said I was dressed in white and black yeah, oh yeah. my god mm. um, <laughs> we always need leaders and, and, and leaders come and go and I would welcome anyone who would join me in waving the indie, the independent spirit flag over the parapet. Mm. Um, I've had many people attempting to in the past that I've not fallen out with, but I just shied away from, not Chris, Chris Jones, sure. uh, simply because often people who think they're leaders do it with such ego and a certain dishonesty mm. that they come across as, um, what's the word? Arrogant, pretentious. Yeah, pretension. Le and lack of integrity. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I think we're lucky living in London right now. I personally think our, our current mayor mm. is leading without the sort of pretense the previous mayor had. Mm. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about the former mayor being Boris Johnson and the current mayor being Sadiq Khan. Thank you very much, Dom. And uh, the the other thing we wanted to mention was, uh, um, I mean, there's, there's another thing I wanted to think because of this like time traveling that we're doing uh, as we talk about rain dance what is it like to make a 200 pound feature because we, there's a lot of legends in the past about people like Robert Rodriguez having to sell his blood to make his first film <laughs> and um, some people having to um, uh, I think it's uh, Sam Raimi who spent all of it he took out a loan and spent all of his benefits yeah. on his first film but what was the mindset and the obstacles that you faced making the film for £200? Okay, well, I'm going to demonstrate one of those uh, obstacles right now. I'm going to yell outside the door and tell them to move because they're yapping out there. Okay. Uh, you know, when you're making a film for, with no money or very, very little money, you need to, you need to get your knee pads on, on and ask for favours. Mm. And the question is, the, the, the trick is... You mean you have to plant some seeds? You have to plant some seeds. <laughs> the question is, how do you ask for a favor yeah so for example uh, one of the films i made for for next to nothing uh we we shot on 35 millimeter i had the free camera that was given to me by panasonic we had mm. that for a week so i knew i had a camera mm. but we needed film stock yeah but we couldn't get real film stock from kodak or fuji but i knew that there were fridges and production companies all around london with leftover ends i just want to ask a question for the for the listeners so when you're saying you're getting this camera from panasonic you're going direct to panasonic the company not you're not going through a facility i had formed a relationship with the higher manager of the company Amazing. that was stocked panasonic cameras cool all right
So I had the camera. Now I needed to get film stock. But I knew that there were people like me who were working as runners mm -hmm. in film production companies around the city. And they were shooting big budget commercials and pop promos on film. And they always have redundant film stock leftover bits yeah. so would that be like all different speeds and all different speeds are all different some out of date and so on and you see they couldn't return them because it's half used mm. but so it's sitting there and I asked a few of them I said could you give me some of your film stock to make my film and they said no wow. and then I realized that they were keeping their film stock in order to make their own film so they, they just weren't getting around to it but I needed film stock and okay. I needed like the next day so I went back to them and said would you allow me to utilize some of your redundant film stock? And they all said yes. Okay. In exchange for perks. I gave them invites to opening night and all that stuff. So the question is, when you want someone to work for you for nothing, you have to look at the ask mm. and how much time you need or stuff you need, stuff mm. for people. And then you have to look at what, how you're going to repay them if you're not using money money. And remember, the government now has these, I think, insane labor laws that you have to pay minimum wage, which is, I think, is good. People should be paid, but sometimes you have no money. So there's no room for flexibility or negotiation no. or mates rates, so to speak. No, a friend of mine, a production company up here in Soho, um, gave all of his equipment to a young director who was working for him. And this director in the winter was really cold, had 30 extras outside Liverpool Station. So mm. this guy is financially secure. He puts a bunch of fibers and tenors in his pocket and doles them out to all the extras on the street mm. Saturday morning to buy donuts and coffee. Mm. Well, one of them sued him because wow. he, they weren't paid minimum wage. Wow. And it cost him £8,000 in legal fees. Ouch. Wow. See, I think that's wrong. Mm. Yeah. yeah? So the, there's there's ways you can structure your program if you have a learning element. You see, if you have a volunteer, mm. if you say, I'm going to volunteer to be on your shoot. Yeah. I say, okay, so you're standing there. And if I say to you, could you move that light over there? Yeah. See, that's now an employment. I've asked you to do something. It's like a union thing, yeah. I can't do that. Mm. But if you say, do you want me to move that light? That's yeah. a volunteer. Yeah. So I'm not... So there's all these legal loopholes that we're tripping over yeah and it, oh, I've got another artist friend of mine a friend said to him I'll model for you life model nude model mm. and she ended up suing him for minimum wage wow it was like three hours some weekend afternoon just for fun he thought but no she, she didn't get paid how much would that amount to a minimum wage that would be like 21 quid yeah so amazing do you, do you think there's a, a fear factor coming back in terms of filmmaking where people are worried about doing the wrong thing before they do the right thing of making we're, we're getting we, we we do as a as a race uh, as a species tend to get obsessed with detail and saving our ass mm. so for example shooting on the street um which you can do gorilla style for free or spend a fortune getting the right clearances and police protection all that so there's all these different kinds of um rules and regulations and sadly europe much as I'm opposed to Brexit, the whole idea of the European Union for free trade and free movement has mm. been overcome by all these bitty, bitty, bitty little rules where the oranges or the tomatoes are the same size in London as it is in Spain. You know, so all yeah. that kind of stuff, I think weights and measures gets a bit crazy. Mm. <sighs> but I sound pompous.
So, what could the authorities do, um, for example, at a local level, Sadiq Khan, the London authorities do to facilitate easier filmmaking? Well, the London, the Film London has actually done a really good job because you used to have to go to each one of the 32 councils. So there's one pot you go to, Film London. So that's very, very good. So if you're crossing certain streets, you're going from Westminster to Camden or Kensington, whatever, you don't need to worry about that anymore. Um, and, and our civic fathers here in the UK don't view the permit fees from filmmakers as a profit center. They just want to cover the cost of police and road traffic and so on how much money they lose from parking meters so that's the very good you know to encourage filmmaking and you see filmmaking all the time in london but as guerrilla filmmakers we don't even have the money to pay the nominal fee sometimes it's just a nominal fee so now you need to understand the rules you know if you're handheld or monopod you don't need a permit but the problem is the cop who stops you may not know the rules mm. So you just have to pack up and leave and come back when they're off shift or whatever. And, and what I do at Raindance, I've shot all over the West End, all over the centre of London, never once have I had a permit. But what I do about an hour before any time I shoot on the streets of London is I call the local police station just up the corner here and say, hi, it's from Sally from Raindance. We are making a... And then I use one of these words. We are making a student test charity film mm. at this intersection between noon and two o'clock. Any problems, call me. Mm. Because the police are really only worried, worried about health and safety. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I, I've got it on good authority from a DP. I'll just call him AB for now in case this uh, becomes, again, a liability suing situation. But uh, this director of photography has said... Um, when it comes to filming in public spaces, it's always a good idea to field in, film in crowds of less than five people in terms of obstructing yes, the, uh, the walkway. If you bring the camera out, keep it in your hand, don't get it on a tripod because, yeah. because again, it's an obstruction. And if somebody else wants to walk in or out of your scene, you either have to cut the film or notify them in advance that you're yeah. filming and whether yeah. they'd like to be part of that film production. Yeah. But yeah, there's some basic rules there that need yeah. to be followed. Yeah. Um, do you think there are any things that filmmakers of today's age in 2018 are making mistakes? Like, is there any obvious things that you think, um, you, obvious mistakes that you see in filmmakers make now, whether it's in the distribution, the film production, or even collaboration with others that you feel shouldn't be as big of a problem because of what you've seen? Well, uh, filmmaking is a collaborative art form. I'm just going to pretend you've got a fantastic script because that's usually the biggest weakness. But the one thing that filmmakers since day one of Ray Nats have overlooked to their financial and career peril is the role of music in a film and music rights and how you clear them. Okay. We had a film in 1996 by two young, uh, two brothers from, um, with, from Philadelphia no, from Philadelphia. And they had a feature film they put together with their own money. Uh, and over the closing credits, they'd put the very famous song, The Girl from Ipanema by uh, um, Jobim and Astrid Gilberto, you know, young and ten and young and, you know, that song. Okay. And they put that over the rear title credits without permission. And someone offered them $150,000 for the film, 
which only cost him 100 to make, wow. which was a really good price. And what year was this? In 96. 96, right. And, but because they put this song over the rear title credits, which is the most expensive place to put a song, mm. over the rear, or the opening or the rear title credits. Why is it? It's just that it's the movie's over, and now, boom, you get the song, people are going to remember it. Oh, the signature tune. Okay. Yeah. And it was going to cost $200,000 to clear that one song. It's one of the, mo the most expensive songs in the world. So wow. they couldn't sell the film. What happened is they went back, to, these two brothers went back to New York, directed Fringe Theatre for five years until they got it together to make their own film. And I would see them interviewed on whatever, and they kept saying, had I only known about music rights, mm. we could... Now, about six weeks ago in London, their latest film came out. Yeah. The Avengers. Oh, wow. I'm talking about the Russo brothers. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Great story. <laughs> but they didn't know about music rights way back then. Yeah. And pe you still see people making the music copyright mistake. They do even that today. all the time. Wow. And then I'll have people saying, you know, that famous aria by whoever, you know, can I just speed it up a bit or to put a distortion? No, you cannot because the algorithms and the gadgets on YouTube will, pay, you know, it's A, it's theft, yeah. and B, it's, it's, it's illegal. Mm. and see it's wrong so you're failing every single count what's one pro tip you would say out loud to kind of help people stop making that mistake before they make their first clear your music film? rights or get your friends who are a new breaking band or musician to make an original score but make sure that they assign 100% of the rights to you mm. because if it's in your film if you don't own it you can't sell it like the Russo brothers couldn't sell their film because sure. they had Astrid Gilberto's song in it okay so, so make sure you own all the music rights. And by the way, a lot of the um, established uh, you know, pop musicians from the 70s and 80s, you see what you have to understand music licensing too, which I'm sure you do. They don't sell their songs. They license it for 14 or 21 years, usually. So a friend of mine, Roland Gift of Fine Young Cannibals, uh, he got all the rights back to his music about three, four years ago. He's since re-licensed back to Capitol, but he kept the rights should he want to put one of those songs in his own movie. Mm -hmm. Wow. Because so he only had the rights to the, the songs that he sang recently in the last few years because he's done a lot of things like She Drives Me Crazy and like Fine Young Cannibals were like really big in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and but but you go to someone like a Rolling Gift, or you go to someone like the Cocteau Twins or Pet Shop Boys or any of these iconic bands, chances are they've got the rights of their music back. Maybe okay. they've relicensed mm. it back to the label. Sure. But if they have the rights, you see, maybe they will give you the music for next to nothing because mm. usually, having mm. done the big pop cycle in the eighties, nineties, seventies, whatever, yeah, uh, they're interested in music reaching a new audience. And there's less um, middleman liaison getting in the way of yeah. distributing the music. Yeah, yeah okay. this is a whole interesting area. And it's funny because I actually watched Guardians of the Galaxy with a friend who's in oh, the film right. industry. And the yeah. thing that impressed him about that film overall was the music. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It was hit after hit after hit. And anyone who's actually in the industry knows just how expensive that is. Yeah. yeah. Never mind the CGI, just the songs. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that's one of the wonderful things. What do you think about that, MKH? Um... No, it's, it's all very interesting, um, but it's always good to hear from someone that's in an industry on what to look out for. Um, I myself, I try to play the keyboard, not very well, but um, <laughs> it's always good to know that established musicians are willing to 
um, probably give away their music. Well, not give it away, but give it, license it to you in the film for um, small change. And you playing keyboard today because I believe you're doing the applause, aren't you? So slick. Um, I just want to ask a new question, um, keeping on the theme of Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, a recent situation has developed um, as recently as this week where um, the famed uh, film director James Gunn, who has directed, I think, Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and Guardians of the Galaxy 2, has been sacked by Disney uh, for what was seemingly offensive tweets that he'd posted online 10 years ago. Now, they say that when you put something on the internet, it lasts forever, but obviously people can change. Um, what's your take on the way Disney has reacted to this situation? Well, we had Roseanne Barr too, didn't we, a few weeks ago? Mm. Mm. Uh, you know, racism and sexism is just wrong, and we've had the whole Harvey Weinstein and all these other people in power abusing people below and and also all the the racism and the you know it's just totally wrong whether or I, I can't comment on the Disney situation I've been following it but whether or not something you said or did 10 years ago should still plague you today mm. might suggest that Mr. Gunn needed a better publicist to handle that yeah. and maybe 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 he should have or could have uh, some before he did when he first did the first one uh, Gal Guardians, Guardians of the, of the Galaxy, Galaxy. Yeah. maybe he could have said look hands up this is what I did before. I'm not. I'm really ashamed of it. Mm. But I, I'm drawing a line. But maybe he couldn't do that. I don't know. Maybe because he wasn't allowed to draw attention to it during the publicity machine of the Avengers, yeah. Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, so in a way, he's a victim. He's now become a victim too. But is that right or wrong? I don't know. But I mean, me personally, I feel that he should be given a different or new chance because I think Twitter in the James Gunn incident is a place where some people try out new material, so to speak, because yeah. you've only got 140 characters. It wasn't really made for 140 characters and this is me making my short film and it's my platform to do something else. It's literally, here's a soundbite or a snapshot of me saying something as if it's like almost stand-up comedy. Mm. The thing that he does for Bread and Butter is he makes films for a living, so people should judge him for the films, but yeah that legacy is not nice i think with the harvey weinstein situation because it's so visceral and so pointed at particular individuals and it's a more obvious exploitation of power i think he's been kind of found out to some extent and do you think social media has a power to change the politics of what's going on in the film industry well, of course it does, and the power to change of politics. I mean, look at Donald Trump. I mean, a classic example of someone who's an expert in propaganda, who's mm -hmm. using the tool of Twitter to undermine democracy and our values. I mean, it, it's t t I'm terrified of that. I, when he got in, I thought it was a joke. Mm. I was afraid he would get in. I thought it was a joke. But, I think people were laughing all the way through it. But now, was, yeah. now, in the last few weeks here in the... Uh, the summer of 2018 i mean what's what he's doing and trying to distract attention from russia by pointing at iran and, and mm. all this and this I, I happen to know quite well the journalists at the new york times who broke the stormy daniels story and that is you know he's got he's being attacked by so many fronts mm. and 
because he's such a, a bull a bully he's, he's using mistruth mm. and dishonesty as a weapon and for some reason he's got this huge following in America which I don't and yeah. in Europe too by that matter mm. um, but social media has become one of the essential tools of a filmmaker yeah. and like any tool it, can, it cuts both ways good mm. and bad so Trump's doing it for bad James Gunn used it for wrong mm. And the Blair Witch Project is a classic example of how social media was used to promote their film. Yeah. For example. Yeah. I mean, can I sorry definitely. to interject? Um, while we're talking about the political aspect of filmmaking, a former juror at Reigns Dance was Julian Assange. That's true. And um, how do you see Assange's situation now? Because he's been under a type of house arrest for six or seven years now. Well, I read in the paper yesterday that he might be on the street as recently as this week. So I don't know. Um, an interesting case, too. Uh, you know, we love to hate the whistleblower. Hmm. And he's been a whistleblower. So was Ed Snowden. There's other whistleblowers. The guy who, who blew the whistle in Cambridge Analytica, the guy from Vancouver, mm -hmm. Rushcut. Yeah. And they've both had feature name. films made by them. Because I think um, Jordan, Joseph Gordon-Levitt played Ed Snowden in a film that came out last year. That's right. I think... Um, Benedict Cumberbatch has played Julian Assange for yeah. TV yeah. and a BBC film production as well. Yeah, but it's astounding. The, the, and, and, but throughout history, the whistleblower has always been uh, shat upon by society. Mm. And, you know, and I think possibly, possibly Julian Assange went too far. I don't know. I don't know. It was a fascinating night. We interviewed him by Skype from the Ecuadorian embassy less than a kilometer away from the cinema where the film about him was being uh, shown. Bizarre. Very yeah. bizarre. So it's an interesting demonstration of what you can do with technology. Yeah. yeah. So do you, I mean, it seems like, um, I mean, mentioning going back to the Donald Trump uh, uh, soundbite you said earlier, it, social media and the advent of like YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and even Vines when they existed, um, it seemed to be the threshold to explore for new filmmakers. And now it feels like we've gone full circle and the old establishment are starting to get their claws out and, and kind of twist and turn social media to their favour. Do you think there's a particular way forward or... Uh, a particular approach that filmmakers of today need to use to harness social media for the greater good. Ooh, that's a. I mean, there are many ways to answer that. Uh, the large companies have ruined social media because now you pay for ads on Facebook and so on. And there's really now three different types of social media. There's the free web that we grew up with that we know and love. Everything's free. And then there's the private web, like your Facebook and Twitter and so on where they can kick you off if they don't like you. And I think that's onerous. Mm. And then there's the, 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 the other way that's happening right now. The third way is, and, and WikiLeaks has pioneered this. You can't take WikiLeaks down because it's all on machine code. Private service. Mm. Yeah. Or is it machine code? Well, whatever you call it. I'm okay. not up to date on that. Okay. Where little bits of his website are stored on multiple servers yeah 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 so you can never take it down yeah. so we have raindance.org is our website but yeah. we also have 172.55. whatever it is yeah. dot 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 also what's interesting now in started in america it's happening here now too mm. 
is that it used to be a big brands when the advertising the internet would give your website a bit of money and give our website a bit of money and someone else's website a bit of money. Mm. But what they do now is they don't give very little of that money to the actual websites. They give it to the ISP, the equivalent of Sky and BT and so on. Wow. And these big companies want to get bigger checks from the brands. Mm. Now, let's say your website is slagging off whoever. So what they do is they turn the speed and your load speed on your website down so it loads oh. really slowly. That's a bit parallax view, isn't it? That's yeah. a very conspiracist thing to no, do. No, but they're How doing do you... that. They're doing that right now in America. They're doing wow. that right now in America. So they, they're literally turning the volume down on certain IP addresses almost. Yeah. 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 That's why you, you know, and now you have to dance between what you say and want to say on mm. your social media, on your private website. Sure. And or your company's website, and then then you have to decide. Uh, let's wickedly state how they're going to protect protect themselves against being kicked off totally, like they were kicked off PayPal and Visa and so on. Well, Elliot, it's been a really fascinating and wide ranging <laughs> chat. Um, <laughs> Certainly. If I could um, ask you one last question, going back mm -hmm. to when you made a film on thirty-five mil in today's technological world is that still a viable way to go about it no <laughs> <laughs> the minute you put a film in your camera to shoot be it 16 or 35 millimeter and to getting it ready to play in the cinema there's about 60 different steps you need to go through everything from the development and editing and then the sound and the optical and the grading and on and on and on uh, with your digital cameras there are still quite a few steps but not nearly as many um, so I would only shoot on film if the if I was producing if the director could convince me that there was some creative reason for using film mm. but Christopher Nolan who you could almost say is a rain dance alumni for having his feature film uh, yeah, he is an alumni he, he is an alumni, alumni. Okay. Yeah. I can say it Christopher Nolan you're a rain dance alumni Godfather Godfather said so <laughs> um, uh, do you think Christopher Nolan is fighting a lone battle trying to keep film on film for the cinema. Christopher Nolan is so successful, he can do anything he wants. Mm. And whatever he decides to do, when people said, why did you shoot on IMAX or whatever, yeah. he will say whatever he says. And I think that's very, very good and honorable. Tarantino, another one, shooting on film, the whatever for Hateful Eight. Yeah. But oh. it's, uh, um, yeah. I don't see any reason for shooting in film these days. Okay, got found. I just want one more question. Um, could you give me two tips on the best ways to build relationships in the film industry? Give back to other people before they give to you. Like give before you get. And the second thing is, what's well, like dating? You know, it's a seductive process. We've got a call coming from Biffa. I'm not sure if we've given away too, if uh, Godfather's given away too many secrets. Do you want to pick up this call? No, no, no I'll go on the machine in a minute. I'm sorry to interrupt your okay. recording. No, that's fine. That makes it a bit more real. It makes it feel like people will now have to rewind it and listen to what tip number two was. <laughs> um, should we wrap now? So yes, can... Elliot, thank you so much. It's been amazing. Thank you for your time. I keep in touch guys. Yeah. yeah.